We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. We come to uh, New Year and we go through certain rituals, struggling to go out, find the words through uh, Burns's song, Old Lang Syne, which we never understand who Old Lang or Zion was anyway. And we wish each other Happy New Year, uh, as if we have a belief that happiness is the ultimate goal that we want for the next year. Or if we're more middle class, we wish people Happy Christmas and a prosperous New Year, because we're concerned about the economic welfare of people. But Generally, these are things that you just say at this time of year, aren't they? They're just the kind of formulas. It's like saying hello and uh, good luck and uh, we don't mean anything by it other than goodwill to the other person. But what do we hope for the coming year? What should we be hoping for? Uh, those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden, those who are persecuted, those who are imprisoned, they know very well what they're hoping for. They hope for freedom, they hope for justice, they hope for liberty, they hope for better life in the coming than they have had this year. But what do we hope for the nations of the world? Well, the nations of the world are full of those kinds of oppressions, full of those kinds of tyrannies. We change, we see the war move from one part of the globe to another part of the globe, but it never actually stops. We hope for peace, for world peace, we hope for justice for the world. We hope for people to live in peace and security. We hope for the things of which heaven only will bring us. And for sinful nations in a sinful world, the sons of Adam, they have a great sense of the oppression that they live under, but their sense of the oppression they live under is an oppression of God. They actually hope to be liberated from God himself. They hope to be freed from his justice, his righteousness, his control. Come with me to Psalm 2. This incredible psalm that lies before us, this wonderful and fairly dramatic psalm that is here. For here in Psalm 2, the nations have entered into a stupid war, a war with God. It's a fairly dramatic psalm. It comes with four speakers, really. The narrator, the psalmist himself, who's like a kind of commentator for what it's happening. And then God speaks, and the Messiah speaks, and it all comes from the nation speaking. There are four stanzas, so to speak, four parts to the psalm. And the narrator occurs in three of them, the psalmist is in three of them, and the other three speakers occur in one each. I'll take you through the psalm, as you see on your outline, stanza by stanza. The first stanza, verses 1 to 3, is about this plot of the nations. For all the nations have combined together, for there's courage in numbers, and you always feel you're going to get much further if you have everybody with you, don't you? It's very hard to be a brave person alone. All the nations have gathered together, and we hear their voice in verse 3 of the psalm. For there they say, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. 
Who's chains? Who's their fetters? Why, God, the Lord, and his anointed one, in verse 2. The nations of the world feel oppressed by God. They do not want God setting the agenda for their world, for their life. People do not want God to be in control of their nations, be they monarchs, be they republicans. They want to run the country their way. The nations want their own liberty, their own self-government. But it's a vain and foolish plot. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? It's an empty one that cannot succeed. For notice the second stanza of the psalm, verses 4 to 6, the Lord's reaction. For here we hear his voice, and here we see he laughs. He scoffs at their puny efforts. For he is God. He is in heaven. He is enthroned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who are they, even combined together, who will be able to rival God? Remember the Tower of Babel? Were all the nations of the world gathered together to mount this assault on heaven by building the tower that would get there? And God only needed to change people's languages to stop the possibility of humanity arriving at this way of ruling the world. The new world order, the United Nations, the whatever it may be, the attempts of people to rule this world without God in combination with all the other peoples of the world will never rival the God who has made the universe. But his, his response is not just humour. It's interesting, isn't it? You don't often think of verse 4, God laughing, but here is where God laughs. That's because human rebellion against God is ultimately laughable. And it's not only laughing, though, it's also wrath. Verse 5 speaks of his anger, his wrath. For such rebellion against himself God will not tolerate. Such rejection of his anointed one, his Messiah, is not acceptable. So notice how God rebukes them and terrifies them. He rebukes them and terrifies them by appointing his Messiah, appointing his king. In the sight of all the peoples, he installs his Messiah in Jerusalem, that is on, on the hill of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the hill upon which Jerusalem is built. On God's holy mountain, he appoints his king to reign over the world. It's not so much that God goes out to war against the nations who are coming out to war against him. He just appoints his king in his place, in Jerusalem, in the seat of power, almost laying down the gauntlet for the nations to come up and rebel, to wage war against my king. If you see my king in his place, you will see how futile is your plot, is your plan. The third part of the psalm, the third stanza, is that of which we do not hear the narrator. He doesn't speak at all in this one. It's verses 7 to 9, and here you only hear the voice of this appointed, anointed king in the Messiah's proclamation. For he proclaims to us the decree of the Lord. That is, in his appointment... God has established him as God's own son. Verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And if he's his son, then he is his heir. And what is he to inherit? 
Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. The inheritance of the Messiah are all the nations. He owns and possesses and is given to them by God. He's given everything by God into his hands. His inheritance is not just Judah. His inheritance is not just Jerusalem. His inheritance is not just Israel. He is the ruler of all nations and all peoples. And he will rule over them with complete authority and power. As pottery cannot stand against an iron bar that smashes through it, so the nations will not be able to stand against him. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And so we have the fourth and final part of the psalm. Where only the psalmist is now speaking, the narrator, the commentator, he speaks, and he explains to the nations the meaning for them of this psalm. He explains the implications of the Messiah's appointment for them. He explains the implications of the Lord's decree to them. He explains the implication of the Messiah's proclamation. Therefore, he says, therefore, wise up you kings who want to rebel against God and against his Messiah. Wise up, you rulers who want to plot. Be wise, be warned. For verses 10 to 12 is the psalmist's warning. For the right response to the Lord's decree that the Messiah has now proclaimed, the right response is to serve the Lord and to kiss the Son. To serve the Lord with fear, rejoicing and trembling in his service. Fear of the Lord, if you remember, is the beginning of wisdom. Wise up, serve the Lord with fear. It's when you actually fear God that you will start to rule in wisdom. People who do not fear God are fools, for God is awesome and fearful. We see the fools every summer, don't we? Some of us have been foolish ourselves, for we race into the surf without fear, without fear of the power the power of nature, as our pagan friends would call it, the power of the created order, the power of the sea that can so easily suck us out, can overwhelm us, can crunch us into the sand, can knock us out, can drown us. To go surfing without fear of the surf is foolishness, is folly, is stupidity. And yet, the fear of the surf is nothing compared to the fear of the Lord. For the surf is but as nothing compared to the mighty power of God. And people want to live in fear of the surf without fearing the God who made the surf, who made the seas. And notice, such service, such fear, involves rejoicing. Part of the reason we go to the surf this time of the year is the sheer joy. The joy that can be had in a place where we should rightly fear. Why, the service of God is not harsh and unpleasant. In it we find joy, for there is joy in his service as we rightly tremble in his presence. So verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Unusual phrase, isn't it? To rejoice with trembling. We think fear will drive out from us any hope of joy. But the right appreciation of the mighty God whom we serve will bring us joy in our serving as we tremble in his presence. 
That is how we are to be living. Serving the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. But also, verse 12, kiss the sun. Acknowledge him as the king, the king of kings, the appointed God, the Lord of lords, and the one who has been appointed as the son of God and as their ruler. The nations and the kings should wise up to who is the king. You cannot serve God and ignore his son. You cannot serve God and reject his son. You cannot serve God and rebel against his son. You cannot serve God and rule independently of his son. You cannot serve God and rail against his son. The nations conspire, the nations have gathered together in order to oppose God and his anointed one. But God has appointed his anointed one as the son who has been given all the nations as his inheritance. To serve God requires serving his son. For if the son is angry with you, you will be destroyed in a moment. Just as if you kiss the son, you will be protected and blessed by him. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here's the quick outline of Psalm 2. But how do we see its fulfilment? Well, firstly, it's been fulfilled in history. In the reign of King David himself, you can see this, for he was God's son, living a thousand BC, three thousand years ago from now. He was ruling in Jerusalem over Israel. He was given such sovereignty over the nations that Israel never again enjoyed such peace, such prosperity, such world domination, such militaristic success. All the peoples around rose up against David time and time again and yet God kept giving him the victory. They never could conquer David. Though he was a great fighter and a warrior and a mighty man of valour, he died in his own bed in peace. All the people, the Philistines classically, were against him, but he overcame his enemies, David, the one who conquered Goliath. But secondly, we see it in history when all the nations succumbed to the mighty power of Assyria and Judah didn't. When Sennacherib marched through the land, conquering and destroying everything in sight, even the ten northern tribes of Israel were conquered and they gathered around the city of Jerusalem. But God's son was in Jerusalem. God's appointed king ruled from Jerusalem. And so they were protected, they were safeguarded. The city could not be taken, the anointed king could not be defeated. Oh, how Psalm 2 would have rung in their ears when they could see that though the nations of the world rise up against us, because we have God's king in the holy city of Jerusalem, on the Mount Zion, because we have the temple of God, because we are the city of God, the nations will never defeat us. And yet, it was only a bit over a century later that the Babylonians did defeat them and did conquer them. 
and did take away the king into captivity. Now the real historical fulfilment took place in Jesus. He is the one to whom God said, you are my son. Do you remember the baptism? The voice came from heaven, you are my son. Remember it at the transfiguration when Jesus and the three disciples go up into the mountain and there he is transfigured in all his glory and again the voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son. He is the one who came proclaiming the kingdom of God. He is the one who was appointed in Jerusalem to be the anointed Messiah by his death and resurrection and the pouring out of his, the promised Holy Spirit of God. For God made this Jesus whom they crucified, both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah, both Lord and Anointed One. And that is why we see the historical fulfilment amongst the apostles. For they, as his representatives, saw the hostility of the nations towards the Christ as the fulfilment of Psalm 2. And they saw the hostility of the nations towards their preaching Christ as the fulfilment of Psalm 2. Come with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. For there some of the apostles who have been preaching Christ have been taken prisoners. Then they've been dragged before a court. We call it a kangaroo court, but they didn't know about kangaroos then. And there they are warned not to preach this name of Christ, this name of Jesus, any longer. But Peter, verse 19, said, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey what you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who had been miraculously healed was over 40 years. Now pick it up, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Psalm 2, first couple of verses. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They prayed, and the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. See, the apostles, they saw in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 2 being fulfilled that when the Messiah comes, he comes in opposition, the opposition of the nations against the Messiah. And so Pontius Pilate representing the Romans, Herod representing the, the Israelites, they gather together against Jesus and put him to death. But it didn't finish with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, nor with his resurrection and ascension and pouring out of his spirit. 
it continued with the opposition to the apostles who preached the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak, speak your word with great boldness. For the apostles, imprisoned, persecuted, threatened, were there because the nations of the world are anti-Christ. That's what they were there for. Because the kings of this world are still in opposition to God and his appointed son. And so when Saul, the man from Tarsus, went persecuting Christians, on the road to Damascus he met Jesus and Jesus called out to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The opposition to Christians was the opposition to the Christ. For as they hated the Christ, so they will hate his disciples. And their attempts to oppose the disciples of the Christ are their attempts to oppose the Christ. That's why Jesus says, if someone gives as much as a cup of cold water to one of these, my little ones, they will receive their reward. For as people approve or disapprove, accept or oppose, welcome or reject the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so they welcome or reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Still today, the nations plot. They still plot against the Lord and his Messiah. Nation after nation is refusing to acknowledge him as the true ruler of the universe. Nations like Saudi Arabia will not allow the name of Jesus to be preached and proclaimed. And the government of Sudan is trying to bring all under the name of Allah, not under the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Indonesian government stands by unwilling to protect its own citizens who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the area that we used to call the Spice Islands in Ambon and the like. But it's elsewhere too. We have here our friends from France and you see the opposition. You can feel from the Chadwicks, you can hear of the opposition that comes from the secular state of France who wants to speak of its liberty, its, its, its egality, its, but it hasn't got the liberty. Our friends from Argentina can tell us of the opposition that comes for those who come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ from a Catholic secularist nation. The communist countries like China, like Cuba, persecute those who bear the name of Christ. New persecution just in the last week or two against those in China, in mainland China. Still in India, the persecution, the fear of Christians is great. Our friends who are here from Malaysia can speak of the impossibility of being able to preach the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the streets to the Malayan community. The risk of government intervention and of imprisonment if you should do such a thing. And even down to petty local government, the most tyrannous of all forms of government. Preventing Christmas pageants in town halls. Not allowing the Christmas story to be told in kindergartens not allowing Christian contributions in university newspapers such as the University of New South Wales or the recently defeated anti-discrimination -legis anti legislation here in New South Wales threatened 
the existence of Christians gathering together for Christian purpose. And the reason's always the same. They do not want the restrictions of serving God and they do not want to acknowledge God's appointed son. They don't want to acknowledge the restrictions of serving God. They do not want to bring godliness as the way of government, failing to be wise by fearing the rulers, the ruler of the universe, failing to find the joy in serving him. They want to remove God from our society for God will restrict what we do and they don't want to acknowledge God's appointed son. So they want all religions to be included equally. They want Santa Claus and reindeers and trees and tinsel, myths and legends that we all know are untrue rather than Jesus, the story that is true, who is the king, who does rule, who does provide the protection and the blessings of God for all who find their, their faith in him. No, no. Let us promote our Santa Claus. We know he's a myth. We know he does nobody any good. But he's acceptable to all. No one's going to be offended by him. I am offended by him. He is an objectionable idol that stands in the place of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. It is infamy that our society should foist upon us in the name of Christianity a Coca-Cola invention of the 19th and early 20th century in the place of our living God. Profound blasphemy is foisted on us. But Christians do not speak up. We must not speak up. Why, it would be rude to say to anybody that Santa Claus is in some way unacceptable to us. No, we must be part of a society that accepts everything except the truth and every religion except the right one. They want Christians to conform to the morality and norms of society, to do good works and to accept all religions, but not to preach Christ not to declare that he is the only way to God and that all other ways are false ways that lead people to hell, not to call upon society to repent, not to warn of the judgment that is coming. Now the Lord's reaction is the same as ever. In his mighty power from his heavenly throne, it is laughable to think that the nations of the world can rival him that they could defeat him or his anointed king, that they could thwart his intentions and purposes. There's been terrible persecutions in mainland China since the communists have taken control in the late 1940s. The missionaries were excluded. Western Christianity is excluded. And yet, by the time the bamboo curtain lifts enough for us to be able to look what is taking place inside China, there has been a greater growth of Christianity in China than all the hundred years or so in which missionaries were there. There are more Christians actively worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ in China than there ever have been. There's a greater percentage of the population than there ever has been. Did they really think they could thwart the purposes and plans of God for his nation, China? It is not their nation, it is his nation. 
It is Jesus' nation, as all the nations are Jesus' nation. The Lord laughs at the humans' feeble attempts to defeat him. And yet, he is angry. Angry that they would rebel against his son. Angry that they would persecute his people. We must not be afraid that we are going to be defeated. The picture we have at the end of the book of Revelation or the beginning of the book of Revelation which we read earlier, chapter 7, was of multitudes beyond number who will stand around the throne on the last day. Beyond nations that you can count, beyond languages that you could know of will be standing there singing the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the victor and his son reigns and will reign over all eternity and all nations everywhere for they have all been given to him. We must not fear government or men or exclusion or ostracism or rejection. We must be like the apostles, obeying God rather than men and then going home and praying like mad for the boldness to speak. For it is a fearsome thing, this standing without fear before men. For within this world, the kings and rulers of this world look mighty powerful to us, don't they? But we must remember Psalm 2, that from the point of view of the God of heaven, it is laughable, and his opposition is implacable, and his anger is found in his decree in the Messiah's proclamation that God is his father, that the nations belong to God's son, that God has appointed and anointed his son as the Lord of all. And when the people of Jerusalem heard that the Jesus whom they had crucified had been appointed the Lord and Christ, they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do? And the apostle said, repent. And today when people realise that the one they are rejecting is the King and Kings, the Lord of Lords, the only judge of all mankind, they too will see the horror of their blasphemy. And then they will see the rightness of the anger of God. Then they will see the justice of the wrath of God. And then we can hear the psalmist's warning. And then we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can give them the psalmist's warning. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the sun while you still can. The service of God with trembling is not harsh oppression but great joy. And the kissing of the sun is not only necessary to avoid God's wrath and the sun's wrath, but also to receive the blessings of his refuge, the refuge from the wrath of God. Australia is Jesus' nation. It is given to him by his Father when he made him the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah like all the nations of this world. And we who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we may be living in a nation which wants to reject our God and wants to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's part of their foolishness. We have every right to be here and every right to proclaim who the true king of this nation is, as we have every right to go to every other nation and proclaim to them who their true king is, the one who rules from heaven himself because of his death and resurrection. So what is our hope for the new year and for the future? 
why it's the nations turning back to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ so that on the last day they too will share with us as we gather around that throne all those who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb singing the praises of him and there'll be many more than we can ever imagine who will join on that great day and then and only then will we have the happy new year then and only then will we have the prosperous new year that will last for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the appointment of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is indeed your Christ, your anointed King. And we thank you that you have called us into that kingdom from nations that, why the apostles didn't even know would exist. We thank you, Father, for your kindness in this regard. We pray, Father, for the many nations of the world who still reject, who will not acknowledge him. And we pray that you would help us to preach the message of Jesus to them. We pray, Father, for those amongst us who have not yet found the joy of serving you, that they may now yet find in Jesus Christ your kingdom. We pray, Father, for those of us who have that we might declare to our nation here and through our missionary friends in France, in Argentina, around the world, wherever they may be serving, in Japan, in Egypt, in Tanzania, that they may be declaring in Slovenia that Jesus Christ is Lord, not just in Jerusalem, but Lord throughout the universe. And we pray, Father, for our friends as they do proclaim this message in places of great hostility and opposition in communist countries and in Islamic countries where such preaching can bring them the real threat of physical persecution and of even death. We pray that you would uphold them to keep preaching your name without fear knowing that they are serving you with right fear. We pray Father for our coming year here in Australia that you would give us that freedom of fear, that boldness to speak as the apostles had back in the Jerusalem so many years ago, that the nations may shape in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.